Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Rex Factor! This week, Catherine Parr! With your hosts, Graham Duke and Ali Hood. Hello! Hello! And welcome to Rex Factor, reviewing all the Queen and Prince consorts of England, from Elswith to Prince Philip. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram at RexFactorPod. Like us on Facebook. Email RexFactorPodcast.hotmail.com and sign up for bonus content at uh, www.patreon.com forward slash RexFactor. And today, as you'll have heard, we are reviewing Catherine Parr, the sixth and final uh, consort of the uh, Six Wives of Henry VIII. We're there. And finally, the question is answered. That question being, <laughs> who is Catherine Parr? Catherine Parr indeed often gets forgotten about, but as we'll see, fascinating character in her own right, far more than just a footnote to her predecessors. Biography! Catherine Parr was born in about 1512, the daughter of Sir Thomas Parr and Maud Green. The Parrs are a notable northern family in southern Westmoreland, as it was uh, at the time, so Cumbria. Uh, today, uh, based at Kendall Castle, though by the time Catherine was around, it was Northamptonshire in London, where the family actually lived. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) Thomas Parr, very much coming man at court. He was knighted at Henry VIII's coronation, a veteran of the Battle of the Spurs in France, and one of four men to have the honour of bearing the canopy over Henry's daughter, Mary, at her christening. Oh, right. Yeah, jolly good. Uh, And he marries Maud Green, and she becomes one of Catherine of Aragon's ladies-in-waiting. And indeed, they are both so close to the Queen that Catherine of Aragon becomes Catherine Parr's godmother, meaning that Henry's final wife is literally named after his first wife. Oh, my word. She... So who... uh, Catherine of Aragon was her godmother? Yes. Of course, that's... (gasps) So it's not just like, oh, Catherine of Aragon's the Queen, let's have that name. It's yeah. because that's her godmother. That... She's named after Catherine of Aragon. Oh, my word. Henry, the show is over, my love. Come on. Now, unfortunately, Thomas Parr's glittering career came to a sudden halt when uh, he died, not uh, because of Henry, but uh, because of plague, sadly, in 1517, when <laughs> Catherine's only five years old. It's, isn't that surprising? Yeah. It's only the second biggest killer in the time was the plague after Henry. Yeah. 
Catherine's mother, Maud, never remarries. Instead, she manages the family estates independently and uh, dedicates herself to her children's education. And she devises quite an impressive educational programme that led to her household becoming something of a finishing school for gentry sons and daughters. All right. Oh, like um, Catherine Howard. Yes, but this one, one is a rather more reputable and well-respected establishment than... Yeah. The rather lax arrangements Catherine Howard had. Because it's a particularly rigorous and scholarly uh, programme her mother sets up, Catherine Parr is possibly uh, the best, or at least one of the best, educated of Henry's queens. So she read and wrote Latin, conversant in Greek, fluent in French and Italian, as well as having various other interests, such as medicine. Like um, Anne Boleyn. She Anne Boleyn, yes. In lots of Mexico. Yeah, so Anne Boleyn, very well educated, very intelligent as well, and probably has got a better schooling in terms of being a courtier, because she goes off to Europe. Whereas perhaps Catherine Parr just focuses on the academia side of things. Work, yeah. Oh, so there were like two different routes. You to get ahead, you either it's who you know or what you know. Yeah, and I guess that's where perhaps not having Thomas Parr around anymore. You know, if he'd still oh, been yes, alive, I see. He might yeah, have yeah. contacts. She might have gone off somewhere else, but instead they've kind of had to hunker down a bit. Just okay. within the path, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, in a fifteen twenty nine, which is about sixteen or seventeen, she marries Edward Burr, the heir to the Lord of Gainsborough, uh, and joins a rather less supportive household. So her father in law, Baron Burr, is an abusive tyrant. Actually, threw out one of his other daughters in law and uh, his grandchildren, calling them bastards. Huh. Just because he obviously didn't like her, <laughs> took against her. So the children live in fear of him. Uh, But thankfully, when uh, Catherine's mother Maud visits them in 1530, she persuades Baron Burr to provide Catherine and her husband with an independent residence at Curtin and Lindsay, a few miles down the road. So they're able to move out away from him and live an independent life. It just sounds like he has mental health problems. Well, indeed, uh, there are mental health problems in the family. And Edward himself, her husband, is said to have suffered from a distracted memory. Mm Mm-hmm. Which, to be fair, it sounds like something that you could be talking about. I was going to say, yeah. uh, what of it? Yeah. It's maybe more of a euphemism here rather than just a literal <laughs> description of the problem. Um, and he dies just a few years later oh. in 1533 when Catherine's only 21. Oh, dear. And sadly, her mother Maud had died the year before this. And Baron oh, really? Burr, as you can expect, just washes, her hands, uh, washes his hands of her once uh, his son's died. So all on her own, really, without anyone to support her. She goes to stay with uh, one of her kinswomen, who is Catherine Neville, uh, a dowager, at her Sizer Castle near Kendall. Does she have any um, money or land? No, she, she doesn't have any money from Baron Burr. Her other sister isn't married, so she doesn't have a household. A younger sister isn't married at this point, so she doesn't have a household for her to join. So there isn't really anywhere else for her to go. So she has to find somewhere, and it's with mm. Catherine Neville. But it's through Catherine Neville in 1534, the following year, that she finds her second husband, John Neville, the third Baron Latimer. Oh. Now, he's much older than Catherine, 40 to her, uh, about 22 at this stage, and he already has two teenage children. Um, but it's not only a beneficial match, because it makes her a lady, so she becomes Lady Latimer. Mm-hmm. Uh, but it also seems to be a genuinely affectionate marriage, so Catherine kept his copy of the New Testament in which he'd uh, inscribed his name for the rest of her life. Hmm. However, it was not to be a quiet life. Uh, they were living at Snape Castle in Yorkshire, which was midway between Durham and York, and consequently, a couple of years after their marriage, they are right in the eye of the storm of the Pilgrimage of Grace. Oh, 1536, yeah. the major northern uprising against the dissolution of the monasteries. And Latimer, her husband, is dragged from his home by a mob demanding that he become one of their leaders. 
Catherine herself, though, comes into danger because when Latimer goes to London to negotiate uh, with Henry or Henry's representatives, they suspect his loyalties back in the north and ransack Snape Castle, take Catherine and the stepchildren hostage and threaten to kill them if he doesn't come back. Thankfully, though, he does uh, manage to negotiate their release when he returns, though after the rebellion, it's actually his life that's then in danger because obviously Henry VIII and Thomas Cromwell very much suspect that he was, uh, well, he was a leader of the uh, in the rebellion, but they suspect that he was ideologically okay. uh, supportive of it. So it's yeah. perhaps in part because of his connection with Catherine, uh, whose uncle and brother had served with distinction in suppressing the rebellion, that uh, Latimer is spared his life. Phew. Catherine doesn't seem to have enjoyed the isolated existence at Snape Castle, and the pilgrimage of grace experience probably puts a nail into that coffin, so it seems to have insisted that they then move to London. And in here, she really revels in the much livelier uh, and intellectually stimulating atmosphere of court life. Yeah. Lord Latimer uh, falls seriously ill in uh, 1542, and Catherine nurses him until his death uh, the following year. Uh, So she becomes now a wealthy widow. He leaves her various uh, northern estates and uh, monies and whatnot, but she doesn't really want to leave court and go back up north. So she secures herself a permanent place at court by becoming a lady-in-waiting to Henry's daughter, Mary. Mm. Because obviously they have a personal connection, obviously with Catherine's connection to... Catherine oh yeah so, so they're natural... like they're stepsisters no no they're god sisters if there are such a thing <laughs> god sisters yeah that's a nice way of putting it because her husband's death is rather timely for Catherine because she has become acquainted with a chap called thomas seymour right now he is a younger brother to jane seymour a courageous soldier and sometime poet with a taste for fashion he's got piratical good looks and a bit of a wild reputation well something's up here because She's gonna clearly there's there's sauciness afoot. You don't you know <laughs> don't go any further in your descriptions, but so Henry's gonna be a fourth husband. Well, uh Seymour starts courting Catherine basically as soon uh, as Latimer dies, and she seems to have quickly fallen in love with him, so she later writes to Seymour My mind was fully bent the other time I was at liberty to marry you before any man I know. Well, unfortunately, transpires that Catherine is not at liberty to marry because she's caught the eye of Henry VIII. God, he's the, the great black hole is sucking in another victim. He's now 52 years old and in you know pretty bad health. As I said, he's got his ulcers. Uh, it's very much end-of-game, ill, paranoid tyrant. Is he bitter? Or is he actually well, all right with the world? He's been apparently sad, pensive and sighing, um, having been unmarried for over a year following the execution of Catherine Howard. Do you know that's what makes him a little bit more terrifying? You know that he's 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 actually looked quite a soppy, wet romantic. He'll <laughs> yes. love so intensely he removes the head. <laughs> it's really creepy. And then mm. anyway, so Henry's been a bit down in the dumps after Catherine Howard, but um, apparently he's reinvigorated by a military victory against Scotland, uh, and as such, he bade uh, his daughter Mary to come to court for Christmas with her ladies because he feels a bit more perky and he wants some female company. It's probably at this point that he spots Catherine Parr. So Henry sets about wooing, and uh, for Henry, obviously, that means bribing her. So <laughs> spends thousands of pounds purchasing clothes of all the latest fashions uh, and appoints her brother to uh, the privy chamber and the garter. Yeah. Also makes him receiver for a riddle. Oh, that's, that's nice, isn't it? Yeah. 
And uh, another person to get a new job was Thomas Seymour, who is appointed special ambassador to Brussels. Is that a good post? It's more the fact that he is conveniently posted out of the country. Oh, I see. Mm. All what? the moves Henry's got in his, uh, in his locker. Yeah, we'll put the husband over there, put the clothes <laughs> in front of her, see what happens. And what now, does happen? Well, usually we don't know what the lucky recipients of uh, Henry's affections really thought about it. But in this case, uh, that's not true. Because Catherine was in love with Thomas Seymour and she is perfectly aware of the pitfalls of marrying Henry. So she later tells Seymour that she prayed numerous times uh, for guidance on this and that God withstood my will therein most vehemently for a time. Through his grace and goodness, he made that possible which seemed to me impossible. That was, made me renounce utterly mine own will and to follow his most willingly. So in other words, um, she feels like she's got to accept Henry's proposal. That's what God has decided she's meant to be queen, whether she likes it or not. Right. <clears throat> so, but it's not completely consensless. She's accepted that this is her part. This is like her fate. This is what she's meant to do. It's not what she wants to do, but she's accepted it's what she's meant to do. Not just because Henry's the king, but because mm. you know, quite a generally... nasty place to have a grey area, isn't it? If you'll excuse the expression. Yes, I mean, I think fundamentally we can take from this that she didn't really want to marry Henry. So, on the 12th of July, 1543, just four months after her second husband's death, Catherine marries for the third time, becoming the sixth wife of Henry VIII. Uh, so, they get married in a small ceremony at Hampton Court. Uh, both of Henry's daughters, Mary and Elizabeth, are in attendance, though, at the wedding. Well, it's just what you do on a Thursday in Hampton Court by then, isn't <laughs> well, it? Yeah. <laughs> So Catherine Parr is now Queen of England, but what will her role be? Because it's often said that she is basically Henry's nurse. Mm. She's seen as a sort of dowdy old matron who just tends to his ulcerated legs. That's my, yeah, that's completely my, uh, that's in my, the entirety of my knowledge of her. <laughs> Well, I'm about to burst that bubble. Uh, David Starkey's argued that the very idea of this would have been regarded as absurd, even indecent at the time. Because Henry, oh, yeah. has, Henry has male doctors who attend to his medical needs as well as his own remedies. Um, mm. And as always, when Henry marries, he marries for love. Well, he, he marries for his love. His love, yes, not. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> so although Catherine is older uh, than his previous wives, about 31, uh, in terms <laughs> of when the relationship starts. Yeah. Catherine, you know, she is beautiful. She has a fashionably pale complexion and auburn hair. Um, also, as I said, highly intelligent and has also got a very naturally sort of kind and friendly disposition. So, I, so she's not the much... Old, I mean, she's an older woman then, but yeah, she's not... I'm imagining someone who's middle-aged and tending to his wounds, but actually she's quite a young, beautiful, well, queen. Mm, yeah. Um, I mean, also, obviously, you know, third husband for her. So, again, that's the difference from the other five, that he is not her first husband. But that's brilliant. I think I'm going to really like her because I, I like the idea of, of someone still being young in that age with such patriarchy going on, and she's got the measure by then. She's on mm. her third husband and, well, really her fourth man, I guess, fourth relationship. She she knows the system, doesn't she? She's going to, I hope, anyway, <laughs> use that to good effect. 
And after the debacle with Catherine Howard, Catherine Parle's virtue is one of her most prized qualities for Henry. So Robert Hutchinson noted that her personal motto of to be useful in all I do has the, the ring of a sensible, practical and dutiful girl guide captain. Well, I rather like it. And Henry is genuinely enamoured with her. That's why he marries her. He calls her sweetheart, lets her, or lets her, sit on his lap. <laughs> oh, God! Oh, it sounds like... Oh, no. Yeah. And he even leaves little poems for her. Oh. Here's one. Remember this writer when you do pray, for he is yours. None can say nay. I mean, it's another way that I bear a striking resemblance to Henry VIII, isn't it? (laughs) Uh, uh, Oh, dear. He he needs to... I'll have him for a Tuesday talk. Uh, What do I mean? Book review. Uh, He showers her with gifts, and uh, Catherine does rather seem to enjoy indulging in a life of luxury, uh, from jewellery and high fashion. So apparently in one year she ordered 47 pairs of shoes. Wow. Uh, also expensive oils. Also, she enjoys uh, rather indulgent milk baths. I, I've always fancied that. I've had porridge in the bath. Hmm. Um, you know, when you have chicken box, you have to put oats oh, in yeah. the bath. Yeah, that yeah. does feel really nice. Hmm. Well, we can do that for Rex Factor. Yeah, maybe we'll get in a milky bath. <laughs> a milky bath. <laughs> but it's a weird thing to say, but, you know, she also has all these lovely sort of oils and perfumes. She's got special lozenges she carries around <laughs> in a box for a bath. So she sp- probably smells great. <laughs> she she is undoubtedly the most excellently smelling monarch we've had. Well, <laughs> recorded smelling monarch we've had. Mm. Uh, she also enjoys dancing, music and hunting, sort of very much matching, very much matching Henry's favourite pursuits as well. So they've got things that they've got in common with each other. Now, like her three immediate predecessors, Catherine isn't granted a coronation. She doesn't even get one of those little river processions that Henry had seemed to like to use as an <laughs> alternative, cheaper version. Mm. Uh, but that doesn't mean that she's of a lesser status because although she's actually very inexperienced as a courtier because she had only just Mm. come to court um, she's more intelligent than most at court and Cromwell's death in 1540 meant that there is actually a a greater opportunity to influence Henry than there had been for quite some time because he's missing that right hand man that he'd had oh right there wasn't anyone filling his shoes then I mean the the role of Lord Chant or whatever the Mm. positions are filled but that close that person yeah isn't really there Uh, and so Catherine is very quickly able to exert her own influence she establishes close relationships with all three of henry's children uh bringing them to court as part of one household on various occasions and she also helps to restore mary and elizabeth to the line of succession Catherine's authority reaches its apex in 1544 henry had uh, declared war on france just a few weeks after their marriage, and the following summer, he leads a military campaign in which uh, he oversaw the capture of Boulogne. Now, that means, of course, that he leaves the country. So, in his absence, he appoints Catherine as Queen Regent. Really? Only the second of his wives to receive that honour after Catherine of Aragon, all the way back in 1513. Huh. So, for several months, Catherine Parr literally rules the country, deals with a wide variety of issues, and demonstrates herself as highly capable and dependable. Wow. So, where is all this nonsense come from then? It's a bit, it sounds a bit like a, a, what's her name? Lady of the Lamp. Florence Nightingale. Florence Nightingale's reputation that is just so much more than the only thing she's known for. Mm. It's that, we'll talk about it in Privy Chamber a little bit more, but basically as a Victorian person that just pretty much invents it. <laughs> right. And then everyone that's just amazing. repeated it as fact. 
So all very good, really, an amazing start for Catherine as Queen. But nevertheless, she, like everybody else, is still vulnerable to the machinations of Henry's court. Fueled by his tyrannical paranoia, it's very much awash with spies and informers, where a fall from grace is basically a death sentence. Yeah. It's weird. The dividing lines at court now are very much over religion. Um, and oh, obviously, yeah. you know, the conservatives, uh, the religious conservatives versus the reformers. And when Catherine becomes queen, she's not really associated with either side. Mm. Uh, and Risley, who's now the Lord Chancellor and one of the conservatives, huh. um, actually welcomes her accession and assumes that the widow of a sort of northern traditionalist and a friend to Mary must be of a conservative mindset. Yeah. In actual fact, Catherine is an evangelical reformer, and part of the reason that she accepts her marriage to Henry and thinks that she, but the reason that God has effectively chosen her to be queen, is because she has a mission to finish, basically finish the work that Anne Boleyn started and complete the Reformation. Oh, wow. So she sees herself as following on from Anne Boleyn? I don't know if she specifically sees herself, like, in relation to Anne, but absolutely the Reformation. The Reformation is about making that finished and solid and perfect in a way that you can we can see yeah oh so we can see that connection um Mm. and uh so it wasn't actually uh, she wasn't quite as under duress as i feared then when it came to the marriage because she was seeing this as an opportunity to as you say finish it all off yeah so she thinks i don't want to marry henry i'd rather marry thomas seymour but actually i've got i've got something to achieve Mm. you know i've got i've got to become queen to do this that's what I'm here to do. Crikey. She couldn't be more different then. Yeah, she's got a mission. And this is, it's not just taking things as they come. This is pushing an advantage. Exactly. Uh, so she fills her household with like-minded individuals, even starts uh, uh, sort of patronising publishing religious books. Nice. Now, Risley and uh, Bishop Gardner, who's the other leading uh, oh, conservative yeah. figure at court, now realise that she's in fact... Uh, one of their greatest enemies. Um, And for them, in favour of their position, Henry has been veering towards a more conservative outlook in his later years. And uh, he'd previously enjoyed uh, having sort of theological debates with Catherine at dinner. Because, you know, he likes theology, he likes debating, but his poor health makes him increasingly irritable. Mm. And he's not not so fond of it anymore. So he complains to Gardner on one occasion Good hearing it is when women become such clerks, and a thing much in my comfort to come in mine old days to be taught by my wife. What's he banging on about? She has the. She's telling me what she thinks. <laughs> <laughs> oh, teaching in that in that sense. Yeah. Oh, I yeah. see. I see. Oh gosh. Well, watch out, Henry. Gets worse. Well, I mean, obviously, this is music to Gardner's ears, the perfect yeah. opening for him. So he secures Henry's permission to investigate Catherine and her ladies for heresy. Oh, hasn't they, uh, haven't they had enough of this? Absolutely not, because they are, they are on the attack, the Conservatives. They really want to get rid of all of the reformers and have control, because everyone's got their eyes on the fact that Henry can't be that long for this world, and then there's going to be a regency. And also, obviously, Henry appointed Catherine as regent when he left the country. They're, I guess, thinking, what happens oh. if he appoints a regent you know, long term after he's gone? What will she do? Now, thankfully, Catherine is warned in advance 
about what's going on, and she is able to secure a private meeting with Henry in which she makes a fulsome submission to him, assures him uh, that his was the last and only voice on her relig- on religious matters, and that her intentions had been misconstrued. That is what all of them wanted, wasn't it? That moment to plead their case in front of Henry. Yeah, that chance. Would he? W- w- otherwise, do you think if she hadn't, would she have? Uh, face the chop would he would he have been looking for a way out at this point we'll talk about this and battling this a little bit more his motivation here is a little bit murkier than okay. it usually is um but he seems to be mollified by what she says but the next day when they're in the privy garden together risley rocks up with an armed guard of 40 soldiers brandishing a warrant for Catherine's arrest well she's with the king mm. he can just say no go away well, or had he was he really mollified by what Catherine had said the day before? Oh my goodness! Was he just playing her? Henry asks uh, Risley to give an explanation, and then suddenly shouts, "Knave! Arrant knave! Beast and fool!" and dismisses Risley and the soldiers. Oh, it was all set up, wasn't it? Mm. So he obviously decided up. not to cancel the warrant because he wanted to teach Risley a lesson. I would have thought it was teaching Catherine one, saying, ah, look, this is what might have happened, because he's actually a terrible well, man. Well, he's, te- he's teaching her, but he's also putting Risley in his place, because obviously Risley and Gardner probably are trying to bring down the Queen. So different people, uh, you could argue, are trying to manipulate Henry, and he mm. has absolutely stamped them all down and says, no, I am mm. in charge here. On the 28th of January, 1547, Henry VIII dies at the age of 55 and a reign of 38 years. God, I'm surprised he got that far. Well, yeah, to be honest, yeah. Uh, Catherine had not been with Henry for Christmas, nor was she permitted to see him in his final days. And indeed, she is shocked to discover that she is not named regent for Edward VI. Um, Henry has, in fact, rewritten his will uh, a month before he died, revoking her position as regent. And instead, Edward Seymour... Thomas Seymour's older brother, so the uncle of Edward VI, uh, emerges as Lord Protector and has himself created Duke of Somerset. In terms of Henry and Catherine, perhaps Henry had grown suspicious of how Catherine would govern in religion. So although she's survived the attempt on her life, perhaps it is enough that Henry thought, "Mm, still nevertheless blotted your copybook. But nevertheless, as Queen Dowager, uh, Catherine Parr is left very wealthy. um, And she's also freed from the responsibilities of government and she can pursue uh, her own interests, chiefly the return of Thomas Seymour. And how old is she when Henry dies? Uh, She is... about 35, Henry dies. So she's got loads left. Well, maybe. Yeah, so Thomas Seymour, the man that she'd uh, loved and wanted to marry before uh, Henry came along, um, has largely been absent from court since Catherine and married Henry, partly, as we said, sent away by Henry, but also perhaps he may have just thought it was sensible to keep his distance. But with Henry dead, he picks up where he left off. Now, initially, Catherine declares that while she was his loving wife in heart, she was determined never to marry and break it when I have done if I live two years, i.e. she'll observe two years of mourning for Henry. Okay, That's the done thing. But as it happens, her resistance very quickly evaporates. (laughs) In June, if not May, uh, they marry in secret. Uh, and Catherine becomes the most married queen in English history, taking her fourth husband. Rex fact! Mm. Now, this is quite a controversial marriage, not just for the unseemly haste 
after Henry's death, but also because uh, it's seen as something of a challenge to Somerset's regency, because Catherine, obviously, is the, the Queen Dowager, is very prominent and powerful. Uh, Thomas Seymour, his brother, is also, you know, the uncle to the king, and both of them wanted a bit more of a role. Oh, so you can that's see a, how it's a bit... Yeah, two uncles vying. Hmm. Uh, but still, overall, this is a happy time for Catherine. She's finally mm. been able to choose her own husband uh, and for love. And she oversees a substantial household as Dowager, which includes Elizabeth and also Lady Jane Grey. Oh, here she is. Well, I've got my own. I'm expecting great things. What's more, at the age of 35, Catherine is, for the first time, pregnant by but, Thomas Seymour. Okay, phew, 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 phew. Okay, I was trying to work that out. Uh, their joy is diminished somewhat by Seymour's sexually flirtatious behaviour with Elizabeth, which oh, ultimately, no. ultimately results in Elizabeth's removal from the household while Catherine and Seymour go to Sudley Castle in the Cotswolds in preparation for Catherine's labour. I remember this from Elizabeth's episode. So that's who the fellow was. Thomas was... Thomas Seymour. ...was Catherine Parr's husband. Yes. Ooh, filthy get. Yeah, we will talk about that a little bit more later. On the 30th of August, 1548, Catherine gives birth to a healthy girl, which she names Mary, obviously in honour of Henry's oldest daughter. Oh, nice. A few days later, however, Catherine falls ill with uh, purpural or purpural fever, oh, uh, becomes delirious, claiming to one of her ladies, I am not well handled, and to Seymour, that he had given me many shrewd taunts and accusing him of denying her access to medical care. Uh, he manages to calm her down, but sadly there's nothing that can be done for her. And on the 5th of September, 1548, just six days after giving birth, Catherine Parr dies at the age of 36. Oh, no. What becomes of her daughter, Mary? Well, so in terms of a little bit of the aftermath, Lady Jane Grey is the chief mourner at Catherine's funeral. It's potentially the first truly Protestant funeral ever held in England. So Catherine's almoner, Miles Coverdale, famous for translating the Bible, conducts the services entirely in English and with evangelical rites. Um, initially shaken by her death, Thomas Seymour, without Catherine there to steady him, allows his ambition to run wild. So he plots to marry Lady Jane Grey to Edward VI, marry himself to Elizabeth, and to overthrow his brother as protector. And he is arrested, breaking into Edward VI's room at night with a loaded pistol and not surprisingly, is executed for treason in 1549. Who's going to execute the... the? Uh, he wasn't going to kill Edward. He was going to basically abduct him and just try to make himself protector by virtue of literally having possession of the king. And this, was, this wasn't a setup. This was real. Oh, yeah. Yeah, he did it. Oh, God. Good riddance. So Catherine's daughter Mary is thus uh, an orphan before she's even turned two. Uh, she went to stay with Catherine's great friend, uh, Catherine Willoughby, the Dowager Duchess of Suffolk, but nothing is recorded of her after 1550. So, sadly, it's most likely that her daughter, Mary Seymour, dies as an infant. Oh, I thought it was going to end up with some lovely tale of her retiring to marry a lighthouse keeper or something. Afraid not. There's some rumours, but um, it's most likely that disappearing from the record means... Well, I'll stick with my lighthouse keeper story. (laughs) It's a nicer one. Anyway, that was the life and queenship of Catherine Parr. We will review her after a quick break. Battle Ness! 
Catherine's mother gave her uh, a sense of agency that wasn't to be confined by her gender, and she takes great pride in her family origin. She continues to sign documents with her maiden name, i.e. Catherine Parr, even when queen. <laughs> cool. Uh, and as we were saying, although she hadn't wanted to marry Henry, she believed she had a divine mission to fulfil the role of queen, so despite knowing the danger, she endeavours to make something of it and leave her mark on history. Um, which again is quite, you know, in terms of agency. Yeah. It's, yes, she didn't have the choice in marrying, really. But once she accepted that, she was like, right, well, I'm going to do. No, she with used this. it. Mm. She used it to. Her, she might. Yeah, that is exactly what battliness is in this series. Mm. But, but more so, she had an, a mission set out and mm. said, "This is how I'm going to achieve it." And of course, she has more freedom of choice once uh, Henry dies, and again, mm. immediately took advantage of it, marrying uh, her own choice as husband, in spite of how it would be received at court that said though she wouldn't stand for it when uh, somerset takes some actions against her so he confiscated jewels that had been left to her in henry's will and then interfered in the running of some of her estates so she wrote uh, to thomas seymour after an encounter with his brother my lord your brother hath this afternoon made me a little warm it was fortunate we were so distant for else i suppose i should have bitten him <laughs> would have bitten him <laughs> yeah quite right now, Catherine has real authority as, as Queen. So in 1543, she had quite an important role in the Anglo-Spanish diplomacy ahead of uh, the war against France. So she uh, welcomes and entertains two visiting dukes on different occasions, uh, all of which sort of helps facilitate the alliance. And that's something that she seems to have done without Henry's supervision or guidance. That's in contrast, we might recall Jane Seymour when she met Chapuis. She was very much kept on a leash with sort of Henry just to one side and then swoops in once she starts talking about mary and he thinks oh oh, that's a bit of a yeah now we'll discuss the regency in a little bit more detail in subjectivity but um a it's worth noting in terms of power and agency she literally does rule the country for a few months Mm -hmm. um but also it speaks to us of her ambition because she probably does see it as a trial run for the likely regency of Mm. edward the sixth and she gives very detailed updates for henry which ensures that he knows exactly what a good job she's doing it's it's the apprentice and alan sugar <laughs> yeah exactly and the fact that catherine had expected to be regent to edward the sixth is shown by the fact that her first couple of letters she writes after henry's death are signed queen regent um, and she even sought legal opinion on whether she was actually entitled to the role so she does you know she's like i i do want this power by the way just in case anyone was in doubt anyone else ask yeah yeah my aunt is very much in the ring for this yeah. she's cool really punchy with cromwell dead religious conservatives are tightening their grip at court but david starkey's argued that catherine's arrival marks the point at which the tide turns in favor of reformers mm. um gardner has actually been plotting the destruction of the archbishop of canterbury himself thomas cranmer uh, and he also then indicted many lower-ranking courtiers in Henry's household for heresy as part of this big move against reformers at court. However, one of Catherine's servants had secretly been sent to observe the trial, and once the verdict is in, he rushes back to warn one of those who'd been indicted, resulting in the papers from the trial being intercepted and uh, the news getting to Henry. Mm-hmm. And Henry is furious that an attack has been made against his own servants without his permission, and he grants them all a pardon. Henry also decides to protect Cranmer from any further attacks, so Gardiner's machinations are undone. But as I it just it's sort of in the background, but it does feel like Catherine's arrival is just the thing which nips it in the bud a bit mm. and turns yeah. it. 
Now, after this, Gardner and Risley seek to have Catherine herself condemned as a heretic. And Henry, as I said, is a bit of murky what Henry's up to, because he does seem to have arranged for Catherine to be made aware of the accusations against her, but that doesn't mean that she wasn't in any danger. And instead, as Catherine realises, what's probably happening is that she is being tested. Mm. So she can save herself, but equally, if her response had been misjudged or not been what Henry wanted to hear, could still have meant death. Henry immediately, and rather provocatively, of course, turns the subject to religion. So in response, Catherine's straight in there, knows what she wants to say, and she declares herself a silly poor woman, assuring him that she did refer my judgment in this and in all other cases to your majesty's wisdom. But Henry is not going to let her get away with it that easily, so he answers, Not so, by St Mary, you are become a doctor, Kate, to instruct us, as we take it, and not to be instructed or directed by us. So to this, Catherine answers, If your majesty take it so, then hath your majesty very much mistaken me, who have ever been of the opinion to think it very unseemly and preposterous for the woman to take upon her the office of an instructor or teacher to her lord and husband. And whereas I have, with your majesty's leave, heretofore been bold to hold talk with your majesty, wherein sometimes in opinions there hath seemed some difference, I did it rather to minister talk, not only to the end your majesty might with less grief pass over this painful time of your infirmity, but also that I, hearing your majesty's learned discourse, might receive to myself some profit thereby. So in other words, I wasn't putting forward my opinions, I just thought you liked to talk and it could help distract you from your illness and pain, and then I would learn from talking to you the true way. So good... uh it's a good reply. I, I haven't quite got to the bottom of why she is fighting for her life yet, though. Because she's being put on trial for heresy. Right. So any time okay. I've said something which goes against, seems maybe goes against what you have put down in law as the true faith, it was simply to provoke, mm. you know, interesting discussion and for me to learn from you by your correction. I wasn't advancing heretical views. Mm. Okay. To which Henry says, Is it even so, sweetheart? And tended your arguments to nowhere's end? Then perfect friends we are now again, as ever at any time heretofore. I'm still I'm still the boss. You still think I uh, you know I'm right in all things? Jolly yes. good. <laughs> and what's more, her survival really does mark the end of the Conservative Ascendancy, and the reformers, of course, are the ones who control the regency of Edward VI. So although she is not regent, you can see her survival here is almost that sort of last mm. that moment that what I'm trying to so say, did not, she blow it i mean she survived but was it at the expense of her mission you could say that she's perhaps a bit culpable in her brush with death she may became a bit mm. overconfident maybe made that usually fatal error of thinking that she could control or at least manipulate henry mm. um and yeah her survival does come at a cost she's forced to stay well clear of religion for the rest of uh, Henry's reign and as we said her role as regent is revoked in his will oddly perhaps you could see that in a weird way as something of a compliment because in 1544 he'd appreciated her abilities to rule and made her regent in 1546 he maybe sees just how able she is and mm. what she might do when left unchecked and that's why he takes it away from her so in a weird way oh. it's sort of a, a compliment yeah. in a way that he takes it away from her because he's like no actually you really would do something yeah uh, so, a score for battliness for Catherine Pass. It's brilliant. And actually, 
I mean, maybe she was complicit in her that moment of downfall, if it was one. She, but she survived it. And I like the survivor instinct. You know, she didn't do an Amberlin and push it too mm. far. Unfortunately, Scotland didn't invade with a massive army like with Catherine of Aragon, so we don't get to see her sort of martial no, but on display. I feel this like she has um, similar similar character traits character traits to Catherine. I can imagine her dealing with that very deftly. It's a shame in a way that like she's she survives an attack against her. It's not that she kind of I don't know goes completely full circle and and then gets retribution. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Quite. I quite like that she decides just to survive. But it's very good. I mean, she did, can't mm. help it that she didn't have a battle. Yeah, seven. Yeah, yeah. I think seven as well. Yeah, I don't think it's like you know we've had ones who've got more than that mm. and a bit higher up there. But no, it's it's impressive. She's got she has agency. She does stuff with the power, mm. and uh, she survives an attack on herself. So I think it, it's cool. someone scoring seven on the opening day of Strictly. And Henry VIII <laughs> is also a competitor, so has the power to say, no, you're not playing, actually. That's a bit, <laughs> a bit too good. So, seven from you, seven from me, 14 for battliness. Scandal. Well, as you said, her marriage to Thomas Seymour created quite a stir. As you said, mm. for one thing, it was all unseemly haste. It was meant to be mm. two months of mourning, and instead they marry after about three or four months. Two years of mourning. Two years, yeah. But yeah they yeah. marry after three or four months. Uh, Mary noted that her father's death was at yet very ripe in her own remembrance and considered it strange news. Uh, while Elizabeth apparently outraged at seeing the ashes, or rather the scarcely cold body of the king our father, so shamefully dishonoured by the queen our stepmother. It's got something of Mary Queen of Scots about it. The marriage also has political ramifications, though. Now, one thing you were asking when I said about her being pregnant and you want a clarification over, you know, mm. is that Thomas Seymour? But that was actually a really genuinely important question because if she had fallen very quickly pregnant by Thomas Seymour, feasibly, even if it was Seymour's child, they could have attributed the paternity to Henry and thus ah. disrupt the line of succession. Yeah. Obviously, Edward is still king, but Mary and Elizabeth would then get bumped down. Yeah. Now, obviously, that doesn't occur, but still, Catherine and uh, Seymour do possess two of the most senior figures in the line of succession in the form of Elizabeth and Lady Jane Grey. Mm. Um, and it's easy to see why Somerset would have seen this relationship as a challenge to his authority. Mm. Um, Catherine suggests, uh, knowing that the marriage won't be popular, that they seek support at court. So uh, Seymour visits Edward whilst uh, Somerset is campaigning in Scotland, and he basically dictates a letter um in which Edward pledges to ensure that Somerset would not be troublesome about the marriage. Mm. And, uh, you know, it is a marriage of passion, but it is also an alliance of two people who felt they deserved more prominency in the Regency. Yeah. Despite being her legal guardian and effective surrogate father, as we said, Seymour takes a sexual interest in Elizabeth, oh. uh, visiting her in her chambers early in the morning, where he apparently struck her upon the back or buttocks familiarly. Yeah. Now, Elizabeth's lady, Cat Ashley, tells Catherine of her concerns about Seymour's behaviour, but Catherine seems to have dismissed it as playful behaviour, and she's either unable or perhaps just unwilling to see what's yeah. actually happening. So on two occasions, she actually joined Seymour on her morning visits into Elizabeth's chambers, where they both tickle her in bed. To normalise it? How old is, well, how old yeah, is Elizabeth? She's 14 at this point. Not, not typically wanting a tickle from the um, from the stepmother and stepfather no 
Uh, and then Cat Ashley recalls another occasion where Seymour romped with her in the garden and cut her gown, being black cloth, into a hundred pieces. And when this deponent, i.e. when Elizabeth, came upon, oh no, sorry, her, when Cat Ashley came upon and chided Lady Elizabeth, she answered that she could not strive with all, for the Queen held her while the Lord Admiral cut her dress. Oh dear. Now, ultimately, she can't deny reality indefinitely, so as Cat Ashley recalled. The Queen was jealous over her and him, insomuch that one time the Queen, suspecting the often access of the Admiral to the Lady Elizabeth's grace, came suddenly upon them where they were all alone, he having her in his arms. Oh, man. Oh, dear, I feel like she's complicit in this. Yeah, now, Elizabeth, as I said, only 14 years old, so obviously we would today classify this as child abuse. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know and it is but i say contemporaries would have seen elizabeth as answerable to her own actions we said before about you know, sort of the age effective age of consent being a lot lower for the tudors so they would have seen elizabeth as a hey, as someone with agency in this yeah uh so when elizabeth departs or be- just before elizabeth departs catherine has a sort of last interview with her and warns her of the dangers to her reputation that could be caused by such conduct and elizabeth apparently answered little which was considered notable given that usually she would resist any reproofs on her character mm. um thankfully they do patch things up again afterwards and are writing affectionately they do bury the hatchet as it were before catherine dies and obviously you would say you know the real main offense there is seymour's but equally as you said catherine is sort of complicit in this very much not her finest yeah ever. it sort of it feels like it's a completely different thing that that twisted relationship with this Thomas character at the end mm. uh, with with Elizabeth is feels like a like a psychological thriller where someone's been put through. I don't know. She's been through a lot, and mm. I feel like maybe there's some pressure being put on her from this Thomas guy, and she's going with it, and it's all a bit weird. I'm not sure if Catherine Parr's being put under pressure by Thomas Seymour, but as you can see, the psychology that you know that he's the one that she's wanted to marry and she's assumed that he's felt the same way they got yeah. married she's pregnant as well just at this point so she's sort of thinking no there's no this can't be this can't be what's happening mm. and it is scandalous in the day as well it's not just our, us looking oh yeah there's lots it. of rumors about it because you know political i mean elizabeth you know is almost on charge for treason as well because actually because he is planning thinking talking about marrying elizabeth the relationship at this point is discussed when she is questioned so, yeah, so it is a scandalous thing at the time. And obviously the scandal is connected with Elizabeth and Thomas Seymour, really. Oh, that's true. How much do we blame... It is Catherine Parr we have to decide. Mm. Yeah. yeah. It's a, a poor judgment at this point. So, still, good scandal. Yes, it is, yes. So we've got the the marriage in the first place and the fact that it's controversial. It's very soon after Henry having those royal children in the household and the question of whether they're manoeuvring a little bit against Somerset the fact they both wanted the regency or involvement in the regency and then this I think it's pretty pretty good don't you think I mean I, she, I she feel had... like it's not bad yeah well I don't know if half full half empty well yeah not exactly. bad, pretty good I feel like a seven again six maybe six yeah I'm thinking yeah I was thinking more like a five and a half or a six I don't, it's sort of, it's just, it's not quite, nothing is nothing quite sticks. there enough. Like the Regency stuff and with Thomas mm. Seymour, it's like, yeah, it is a, it's a bit, ooh, but it, they don't, there isn't quite anything they do, which is really scandalous there. And the Elizabeth thing obviously is a very scandalous thing that mm. happens. But again, it's, it's, it's more Thomas Seymour doing it. And while she is complicit, that's not quite the same. Yeah. 
Yeah, that's true. So, yeah, I think we'll go five and a half. I feel like it's just above the the middle bit, mm. but nothing quite lands for me to be high, high. Yeah, all right, six. I'll stick with six. So six for you, five and a half for me. That's 11 and a half for Scandal. Subjectivity. So Catherine becomes queen ten years after Anne Boleyn, which is a decade that's been, to say the least, disruptive for the royal family. Mm. Uh, But Catherine brings a real sense of Henry and his children being a family for the first time. Yeah. So they actually live under one roof on various occasions. And it's obviously considered unusual because Mary of Hungary, the regent of the Netherlands, wrote to Shapwe in 1543 asking whether they continued still in one household. Oh, right. Well, it's unusual for Henry. Is it unusual for the time? I think it's more Henry. Okay. It's not like she's saying, oh, my God, they actually live all under the one roof. (laughs) And beyond just the nicety of happy families, as I said, it had a lasting significance because Mary and Elizabeth were restored to the line of succession, and many contemporaries do attribute Catherine as being a key factor in making that happen. Good. Well done. She also has a positive impact on the three children as people. So Mary seems to have come out of her shell and enjoys herself at court a little bit more after a decade of hardship. Um, Now, Edward, of course, is always cherished by Henry as the long-awaited son and heir, but it's always a rather distant affection, and he never has a mother figure in his life until Catherine comes along. And And they share the same religious beliefs. Same religious beliefs, also both very scholarly. Um, He sends her various letters to his most dear mother. But the most profound influence he's had on Elizabeth, um, Catherine is a mother figure to Elizabeth from the very formative ages of 9 to 15. Mm. And she's a very important figure in shaping the woman and queen Elizabeth would become. Elizabeth is at Catherine's side when Catherine Parr serves as regent of the country. So at this impressionable age, Elizabeth sees the country being ruled confidently and effectively by a woman who's receiving the formal submissions of business from male counsellors before giving them their instructions based on her judgment. So as David Starkey observed, Elizabeth saw a court fronted by a woman and managed by a council. Between them, they successfully ran a country racked by war, plague and religious division could have served as a precedent for her own government as queen so obviously shaping the queenship of elizabeth i is uh, quite quite the legacy but catherine achieves much as queen in her own right she's a significant patron in various disciplines uh, she commissions leading artists in portrait and miniatures uh, including susanna horenbode lavina tierlink and margaret holswither who are the first known female artists in england hmm uh, she loves books and promotes the art of bookbinding. Hang on, first female artist? First known female artist in England. So, I, you know, they are named, employed at court. That's brilliant. Oh, well, girl power. Uh, in 1544, she helps publish an ABC primer to help ch- uh, children learn to read in their own language. She's Dolly Parton. <laughs> She had a love of learning, so she actually she continues her studies as an adult, so she learns Spanish while she's queen, um, as well as interceding with Henry to protect Cambridge University uh, from dissolution when a categorisation was made that could let Henry do that if he chose to. Uh, and as a result, instead of dissolving it, uh, they end up uh, founding Trinity College instead. Ha! She is Dolly Parton! Now, the high watermark of her queenship, of course, is when she became regent less than a year after becoming queen. And this is a significant show of faith in Catherine's abilities uh, on Henry's part. Obviously, you know, it's only Catherine Aragon that got that honour before, and Catherine was the daughter of two reigning monarchs. Yeah. 
Um, but his faith is well rewarded. She proved herself a highly capable administrator, issued proclamations on issues such as the status of French residents, army deserters and outbreaks of plague. Um, and she shows particular skill and knowledge in the challenges of the Anglo-Scottish border. <coughs> Perhaps, obviously, having been up in the north, she's maybe got a little bit more of a, yeah. a sense of it. Uh, so the report sent to her that Scottish prisoners... Uh, in the north were likely to die if money was not sent to feed them but there was an issue with plague in various other sort of northeastern towns mm. so Catherine quickly writes back commanding that those of the poorer sort who are stout busy or otherwise like to do any hurt being at liberty should be sent to a, a variety of prisons around the mm. north whilst others um, if extreme necessity shall require could be fed at the king's expense and the rest shall be released upon a bond for good behavior oh right so I mean, I'm. Hang on, I'm taking that as a positive, presumably. That yeah, so like the absolute, rights. absolute rot, worst of the rotters who are going to cause trouble, stick them in prisons, but different ones to sort of spread it out and whatnot. Mm, Others, you know, if we've got to feed them, we've got to feed them. But the rest of them, let's just send them home. Yeah, brilliant. Her greatest legacy, though, is helping to shape the Protestant Reformation that would be fully realised under Edward VI and, Ed, and uh, Elizabeth I, she turned her household into what David Starkey has described as a Tudor Open University course in religion. So each afternoon, one of her chaplains would preach a sermon to Catherine and her household in her privy chamber, attacking abuses in traditional church beliefs. And this educational culture has a real legacy because a lot of the next generation of leading and particularly female religious thinkers in England are part of Catherine's household. So it's sort of their schooling in a way. Oh my gosh, she's amazing however she doesn't just operate behind closed doors she also herself authors and publishes devotional works which makes her the first english consort to be published as well as the first english woman in the 16th century i mean rex facts are bouncing all this room like bouncy balls so the first, uh, which is published anonymously in 1544, was Psalms and Prayer, uh, Psalms or Prayers, which is a Oops. translation of works by Bishop Fisher from 1525, which Catherine re reworks to be relevant to, uh, for reform. <laughs> so over you to say to be smutty, <laughs> uh, but it also well, it's sort of not smutty, but it does also serve weirdly as wartime propaganda. Because uh, lots of the psalms that she includes are focused on defeating enemies, and it's published at the same time that Henry is going off to fight in France. And so the ninth psalm, which is one of them in the book, is actually set to some pre-existing music by Thomas Tallis and performed as part of a wartime service at St Paul's Cathedral. Wow. It's like uh, bluebirds over the White Cliffs of Dover. Mm. And her A Prayer for the King... Uh, is inserted into the Book of Common Prayer in 1559, most likely by Elizabeth, uh, and it remains the prayer that's used by Anglican communities to pray for the monarch today. Really? Hmm. Huh. Now, the first work published in her own name was Prayers or Meditations in 1545, uh, with a title page noting that they were collected out of certain holy works by the most virtuous and gracious princess, Catherine, Queen of England. Her final work is The Lamentations of a Sinner, which is written in 1546, but after her brush with death, not published until after Henry's death in 1547. Uh, this was a much more personal and original work. So rather than being a translation, it's written in the first person, uh, with Catherine castigating her former self for adhering to old religious habits, before then describing her acceptance of Protestant tenets such as justification by faith alone. Now, this was less popular than her other two works, both of which ran through about 20 editions over the next 50 years. 
Um, but it does very much support the Protestant theology of Edward VI government. It has a preface written by William Cecil, who's the future oh, yeah. chief minister to Elizabeth yeah. I, uh, and has been described by her biographer Susan James as a remarkable book. She is a very bright bean. Mm. Um, I like her, Graham. I like her a lot. Against her, she isn't queen for very long, which obviously is beyond her control. But obviously, but that does mean that she doesn't get that long. Now, you could say she achieves an awful lot in <laughs> in a short time. In some ways, it's more impressive that she does all this. Mm. You could also say her marriage to Thomas Seymour could be viewed as a mistake that does lose her a bit of credibility and loses her some influence at court. Um, of course, it's hard to know how serious or long-lasting this was because of her own tragic death so soon afterwards. I think, subjectivity-wise, would I want her to be queen? And I think I'm going to scrub the um, the Thomas what's-his-name stuff. Mm. And during the time that she was queen, unless I were Catholic, <laughs> uh, absolutely yes. And certainly if I was a woman, she's awesome. Was it? And she's just known for being someone mopping Henry's brow. Yeah. Useless Henry by this point. But she's out there doing all this educational stuff, mm. like Dolly Parton. <laughs> Yeehaw! It's Catherine Parr. <laughs> <laughs> I really like it. I think I think eight. Yeah, I'm thinking even higher for this. I'm thinking. I mean, it's it's the only thing that I'm reticent about is the fact that it's not very long. But equally, she fits an awful lot into not very long. And you think particularly, you know, if this was 100 years earlier and I just picked three of those things and said, that's what we've got, we think, oh, yeah, that's really good, oh, a six or seven or something. So yeah, to have that's actually true. really do stuff, you know, all the, you know, literally writing and publishing her own books. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. That's so true. I think I'm only doing eight because I'm being held down by this image of um, her... This uh, nightingale image. <laughs> Each one of these things is amazing. And I think sort of looking back at this, the, the six wives, they've got their different qualities and things you like about them. I don't know, they feel something a bit more like she's the one that's maybe a bit more... I'd like to be mates with her best. She's the best one. So for subjectivity, I'm going nine. I will gladly match you. So that is 18. Subjectivity. Longevity. Well, obviously, as we've just been saying there, not so long as Queen, unfortunately. So she is Queen Consort from the 12th of July, 1543, to the 28th of January, 1547, which is the death of Henry VIII. So three and a half years, which gives her a score of five, which is the 45th best overall. Though, remarkably, it is the second best among the six wives. Really? Six months longer than Anne Boleyn, actually, as Queen. <laughs> wow. Mm. Good for her. Team Catherine. Pa. Dynasty! Not the president. Sadly, no children by Henry VIII, which gives her a score of zero for dynasty and a joint 42nd. That's brought her down, obviously, those last two. So her total score is 48.5, which uh, will put her in joint 15th with Eleanor of Castile. Still? Still, it's not all about the scores. Does she have that certain something, that great achievement and lasting legacy that we call... Rex Factor! I'm saying absolutely yes. This is the purpose of this podcast. We've got to reveal all those people who are in Henry VIII's shadow behind in the big book of kings and queens. <laughs> she was awesome. Married four times, 
Um, she was in at the deep end of the pilgrimage of grace, survives the plot on her life. Powerful and influential queen restores Mary and Elizabeth to the succession, to the succession rules as regent, first consort to publish a book, helps shape the Protestant theology of Edward and Elizabeth, um, on whom she has you know profound influence. And also something I found quite interesting, it's easy to get inured to the story of Henry's wives. It sort of feels like it kind of follows a very familiar pattern and mm. can get all a bit too familiar. But it's also the end of a story, not just of Henry, but of English queens. So of the nine queens we've had from Elizabeth Woodville to Catherine Parr, all but two have been English. There won't be another native consort until Elizabeth Bowes Lyon in 1936, 389 years later. Wow. Which is almost exactly the same gap as from the Battle of Hastings to Elizabeth Woodville, which is 398 years. You had Matilda of Scotland, uh, obviously, but... And technically, of course, you know, we said Matilda of Scotland there that I'm not counting. You could argue Elizabeth Bowes Lyons. She is the daughter of the Lord of Glamis, who is a Scottish nobleman. Mm. So if you wanted to treat Elizabeth Bowes Lyons as Scottish, then that would mean that there wasn't another English consort until 2022. <laughs> wow I mean that is a Rex fact for us to chew on isn't it <laughs> take take that with a big old glug of water because that's going to be hard to digest yeah I agree with you I really I really like Catherine Parr I think she's really she's really interesting she's really capable I like her attitude she gets stuff done in a really mm. short space of time Gen- does leave genuine legacies, you know, the, the book she does, The Protestant Reformation, The Influence on Elizabeth, and she does some really impressive things. I think she's a really good queen consort. Yes, it's very short, but she packs an awful lot in. Mm. So I'm also going to say yes to Catherine Parr, the Rex Factor. Catherine Parr. She joins Catherine of Aragon and Anne Boleyn, uh, as well as all the other ones we had before, on that Rex Factor mountain for the consorts. Three out of six. Hmm. Correspondence Corner. So that was Catherine Parr. Let us know what you thought about her. We're doing a right of reply episode for the Six Wives. So let us know what you thought about them. Uh, any surprises? Who's been your favourite? Anything you disagree with? Uh, as we said at the start, find us on Twitter and Instagram at Rex Factor Pod. Like the Rex Factor Podcast Facebook page. Email Rex Factor Podcast at hotmail.com. And remember to send in your hashtag consult cards for an episode image for uh, Catherine Parr and be in with a chance of winning a Rex Factor Henry VIII or Mary Queen of Scots figurine. Join on Patreon. And join in the Discord chat, because that's where we hang out. Mm. And you also get access to over 150 bonus episodes on uh, Patreon. So, we welcome some new Privy Councillors. Ali Gibbs, Corfney Donhile, Catriona Lawler, Leah Denman, David Davies, Patricia Huber, Therese Scholblom, Jackie Stockley, Ellen Streitland, Christina Morgotcha, Matt and Electra Esquire, Alison P. Sherwin, Judith621, Alex Whitmarsh, Alexander Arscott, John Peter Candlin, Tommy Wood, Heather Campbell, Dr. Davis, Marion Rett, Chris Thomas, Sarah Gabby, Angela Bowers, Douglas Thompson, Jason Smith, and Jeff and Gerald. Hi! Hello, welcome, thank you very much, get involved, it's lovely to have you here. So that is all from us today, and that is all for The Six Wives of Henry VIII. Nine episodes, and our odyssey is complete. Next time we'll be doing uh, the Right of Reply episode for The Six Wives. Uh, We've got a few interviews 
lined up. Special episode will be coming up for patrons or for purchase on Catherine de Medici. And then we will get started on the Stuart consorts, albeit starting with Philip II of Spain. I can't wait. Well done. That's been a slog. <laughs> it has indeed. A good slog, hopefully. <laughs> <laughs> Cheerio. Cheerio.